The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, foreign affairs, markets, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We think back to not all that long ago, the number of radios and batteries that ground troops had to carry to be able to communicate. And now being able to do that in small devices, not to mention what you, know, you can do with your phone or what you're capable of for 5G networks. The proliferation of this technology is now out there. You can't really roll it back. And so how do you, how does the U.S. and our allies stay ahead of that curve with developing capabilities that can effectively deter, contain, and otherwise kind of mitigate their, their use? Shoulder-fired javelins, Turkish drones, hypersonics, artificial intelligence. How Russia's invasion of Ukraine is disrupting long-held assumptions about post-Cold War deterrence and military technology. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Chris Rogers. He's a managing director who leads the Harris Williams Aerospace Defense and Government Services Group at the Investment Bank. He has nearly 20 years of investment banking advisory and operating experience in aerospace and defense. Earlier in his career, Chris served as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. By way of full disclosure, Chris and I crossed paths at business school nearly 20 years ago, where we'd have these long-ranging conversations about 20th century military history and balance of power and everything. And so I thought it was the perfect time to have him on. How are you, sir? Uh, Robin, I'm great. It's good to be with you. Chris, in the month or so since the invasion of Ukraine, kind of plus or minus, I've been thinking a lot about asymmetry. And many of the lessons that we've learned kind of in 20th century warfare, World War I, World War II, blocks of nations, multilateralism, balance of power, mutually assured destruction with the nuclear weapons. I think a lot of people on Wall Street and strategists overall thought that it was overwhelmingly unlikely for Russia to invade Ukraine, considering all the, the various repercussions they could face economically, militarily, uh, in the global world order. What was going through your head? Well, Robin, it's a, I mean, it's a question as it relates to your original where you started in terms of asymmetry that we give a lot of thought to. So when you think about the term, it implies an imbalance. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of draw a longer view right. as it relates to kind of military capability, there's a constant over the course of conflict where sides are looking to create some type of advantage, whether that is if you go back to major innovations uh, when it comes to you know introduction of the steam engine to rifle to modern artillery to aircraft carrier, submarine, nuclear weapons, precision guided munitions, there's been instances where like certain types of technology have dramatically altered which side has an advantage. And oftentimes when you are assessing kind of force capability, 
there's a heavy emphasis upon uh, those technology capabilities. In some instances, when they haven't been seen kind of in, in, a, in a combat environment, it's hard to assess kind of the full impact of kind of how acute that asymmetry may be. But it's also critically important to uh, take into account that outside of some of the advantages that certain weapon systems or certain technology can bring to bear, there's also a, a constant that comes in when you're trying to assess ranges of outcomes that ties back to factors that extend beyond just the weapons and just beyond the technology, which includes you know, the composition of the force, nature of the mission, culture of the, the parties that are involved. So we, we try to look at all those topics. And I think it was really hard if you roll the clock back, you know, five, six weeks to, as it is today, to look out even beyond a week in a pretty dynamic situation to assess exactly where this is heading. But I can say, I think for our team here gives a lot of thought around just developments, not just in Europe, but around the globe that certainly point towards elements from a national security environment that kind of point towards the next 10 years likely being far more impactful than the last 70 in terms of just potential impact with uh, ways the world could go. It's interesting, Chris, you and I might remember we're in Spengler Hall eating lunch discussing, I mean, you had a voracious appetite for military histories and political histories. And I've actually, but my mind works in bizarre ways, but as I'm seeing these Russian tanks steam into Ukraine with kind of jury-rigged fenced cage tops being pierced by javelin missiles. That's what I also was thinking of an asymmetry, because how could you not have been prepared? Clearly, Russian military intelligence would have told them that these things are susceptible at the top from the javelin. I mean, it's been getting disproportionate amount of press where uh, Ukrainians with a minimum amount of training can launch something over their shoulders and kind of walk away from it and not be sensed that it can do significant damage to this long procession of tanks that were trying to make it into Kiev. Well, it, there's been, I'd say, the last, call it five plus weeks have, uh, even with the information that's coming out from a range of sources, there's been examples of certainly range of modern weaponry kind of in use. It's also probably a, a great example or a reminder of just the, the constant back and forth that exists when you think about, and if you, if you take kind of the, the javelin weapon system kind of as an example, and even trace that back to kind of origin of the, of the, the tank, I mean, the, the origin of the tank really came about when you thought about introduction of the marine the machine gun, and you needed to develop a weapon system that would provide mobility, provide protection. So you look at a lot of those early tanks that were developed, it was uh, heavily armored kind of at the front of the uh, the tank. And then- When were they first developed? I mean, you really saw the first uh, tanks in use um, in a limited capacity kind of in the First World War. Mm. And you also saw uh, you know evolution of, or really kind of- Cute demonstration of just artillery and indirect fire in the First World War, as much as artillery traces its its routes back for many, many uh, years, kind of prior to that point. So the tank is a kind of accumulative hundred year work in progress, right? They keep adding and detracting from it and adding functionality, but you've seen new vulnerabilities on the kind of the preferred Soviet model tank. I think the T seventy two tank. Yeah, I mean, view that the tank is a tool kind of within most nations' arsenal that provides certain advantages, right? So it provides high level of mobility in most cases. It provides uh, a high level of protection uh, relative to indirect fire, meaning artillery mortars, provides protection for most small arms. But uh, like any military weapon system or platform, there are vulnerabilities. And so part of what most militaries are going through the exercise of doing is kind of 
finding ways to exploit those. So a Javelin system is an example. It was developed to be very, as you mentioned, it's effectively fire and forget. So it requires relatively low levels of training to employ. It's highly effective. Uh, when you think about kind of going after vulnerable elements of a, of a tank, it's typically go after it's an infrared. So that allows you to effectively fire and forget it. And it's going after where the armor in the tank tends to be thinnest. It's also so it's a smart it's a smart projectile. It's infrared. It kind of I saw it hovers in the air and then finds its source and goes at it. So the person who launched it could flee before retaliation. Yes. Yep. And you're highlighting a great example of there's a lot of instances where you know early anti tank weapon systems like a predecessor of the javelin was the TOW, which was is the acronym for tube launch optically and wire you know optically and wire guided. And so the individual who's employing the weapon system had to literally keep the crosshairs on the target because there was a wire that was deployed out of the back of the missile that went back to the launch system. And so you literally had to steer wow. it onto the target. So as soon as you fired that weapon system, you also created a signature and you were opening yourself up to kind of counterfire. And in those instances, if you came off the target, then the missile tends to go errant. So again, Toe is a great example of, or I should say the Javelin is a great example of, you know, kind of constant counter systems. The armor, though, you know, provides a lot of advantages, but there's you see a lot of instances, not just in the last five weeks in Ukraine, where there's counter systems for it. So typically when you're in an urban environment, you're in channel terrain, you need to deploy infantry uh, out of the back of uh, armored formations in order to kind of flush out threats that might be coming from things like javelins. And to do that requires a certain level of training, a certain level of small unit leadership. And so there's elements of a constant kind of back and forth between weapon systems that is a big part of kind of how nations think about kind of building out capability. I'm fascinated by how you bring the human capital in addition to kind of the hardware capital conversation into the equation, that this is not just kind of a a dumb unleashing of troops out there, that they have to be trained, they have to have a purpose if there's an asymmetry of kind of urban versus air, uh, if you're motivated as kind of repelling an aggressor versus uh, troops that were told maybe they were coming in for a training exercise that it could lead to, I don't know if this is even an officially a stalemate, but you do see some backtracking from Moscow saying that we might not concentrate on Kiev for the time being. And, and you know, you're, you're seeing aerial shelling of other places like Mariupol. I did see a headline on CNN, Chris, that says Ukraine tells the United States it needs 500 javelins and 500 stingers per day. What's a typical order for things like this? I mean, you don't keep stingers in a warehouse somewhere in the Beltway or at a military base. I mean, what's the background to all these? And I'm sorry for sounding not very well informed about this, but it's all been in super sharp relief since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I know that listeners have all sorts of questions about it. I think uh, probably hard to comment on the specific volumes that are required as it relates to the type of operations that are taking place in Ukraine. Uh, I think what some of the coverage has highlighted is the proliferation of advanced, a, a range of kind of very advanced military capabilities. What's relevant to many of our clients, and then also I'd say if there's some constants between current administration, last administration, it's been a recognition of that. And the recognition probably stems from the reality that the position that the U.S. Uh, enjoyed for call it the last 30 or benefited from for the last 30 years where we had disproportionate military advantage in terms of capabilities, uh, that that's evolved. And the idea that uh, if you look, went back to the first Gulf War, which was in many cases a showcase for uh, capabilities that had been developed uh, dating back to kind of the 70s, meaning hmm. satellite GPS, satellite imagery, 
night vision, precision guided munitions. There was a, you, you termed asymmetric. I mean, it was an acute display of just asymmetry in terms of what the U.S. brought to bear. In many ways, the last 30 years is also a historical anomaly. If you kind of extend the horizon back much further, there have been a few instances in the history of military conflict or even periods of peace where one side has enjoyed such a disproportionate advantage. And so a lot of where we spend time now uh, is focused on those topics where uh, both, I'd say, policymakers as well as our clients are focused, which is where are we today from a technology standpoint and where do we need to be? And this is, again, a constant, I'd say, of both current administration and last administration of how do you prepare some of the capability that in most cases you're hoping is going to be a deterrent? Because in the vast majority of instances, any type of escalation tends to be a lose-lose. But if you put things on that list, I mean, you, I'd say topics that get disproportionate levels of attention from in conversations that we're having, it's topics like autonomy. Uh, so you're starting to see some of that in terms of not just drones that can be flown, but drones that operate without a human operator. In the case of mm. uh, the U.S., where there's still restrictions on being able to employ a weapon system without actually a human kind of in the loop to make that decision. Artificial intelligence is commanding a tremendous amount of attention. There's a large national commission, or there's a uh, high-profile national commission that made some pretty bold uh, recommendations around what needs to be done to ensure the U.S. takes and uh, continues to maintain kind of a lead in terms of the applications of that to military capability. You're seeing not just drones in the air, but if you look kind of on the Pacific, I'd say unmanned surface in terms of capability for the Navy, unmanned underwater for the Navy, for the uh, Army and Marines, I'd say underground ground robotics are also commanding a lot of attention. Advanced analytics, a whole host of software, being able to kind of make more efficient, better use of information. You're seeing a proliferation of satellite imagery, right? That was just used to be the domain of mm -hmm. kind of the most classified U.S. agencies. But now right, right. I mean, you can go on Google Maps, right? And you can see a lot of this being used where you on your phone can get imagery that at one point would have been within the purview of only a pretty select number of agencies, kind of within a pretty select number of countries. Electronic warfare, right? Again, I, we think back to not all that long ago, the number of radios and batteries that um, ground troops had to carry to be able to communicate. And now being able to do that in small devices, not to mention what you, know, you can do with your phone or what you're capable of for 5G networks. And then there's things like you know, hypersonics, you're starting to see emergence of like augmented reality into kind of range of systems, both from training, but also in terms of how folks work. Space is commanding a ton of attention, right? It's kind of a new domain. And it's contested in some cases where we're accustomed to it being a relatively permissive environment. And then cyber, right? And so even just, I'm sure you remember just from time in Richmond, like close to home for many of us, when cyber attack took out Colonial Pipeline, there's mm -hmm. elements of how either state or non-state actors can influence both commerce and daily activities of a country and things that used to be limited to weapon systems, right? The idea of kind of shutting down Right, right. Um, access to gas used to be something that you think about a, a military capability, not like something that could be done via computers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Chris Rogers. He's a managing director at Harris Williams, where he leads and he founded the Aerospace Defense and Government Services Group. In a past life, uh, Chris served as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. We crossed paths at business school. Uh, where we used to talk about these things. And I thought it would be helpful, kind of almost as an FAQ, as an explainer, as a primer, to bring Chris out. He's been a very busy month and a half or so, I imagine, Chris, with defense, which is kind of an evergreen in aerospace, but especially in the news. Our team spends time across commercial aerospace, business aviation, defense, and government services. If you think about, I think, relevant to this discussion, onset of COVID certainly impacted all of those sectors. I'd say disproportionate impact to commercial aviation. As a result, I'd say defense and government have commanded 
a really high level of attention amongst investors, both as a source of resiliency in terms of kind of spending flows and revenue, but also because for a lot of the reasons we highlighted in, in an earlier part of this discussion around um, areas of interest in terms of where the defense budget is investing. And so when you think about kind of areas where we've seen a lot of M&A activity, defense electronics is on that list. Uh, defense maritime is a sector that is uh, commanding high levels of interest in part because this administration and past administration are very focused on kind of capabilities in the Pacific, capabilities for U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps, et cetera. So it's, a, um, it's an active segment that's also seen, I think, of a high interest to us in addition to traditional strategic investors and private equity investors. We've also seen real emergence of venture capital into the sector, which is, I'd say, a, it's not a new development, but when there's one that I said that's been a pretty material hiatus. From well, we're we're gonna we're gonna get into that, Chris. I was thinking about a comment you made earlier on endless escalation and kind of lose lose. I'm thinking about Doctor Strange Love and the final scene. I hope it's not a spoiler for anyone of writing that that kind of nuclear warhead. Uh, that is the specter in the background here. You have the premier powers from the Cold War, the former Soviet Union, the United States kind of as the centers of gravity in this war, kind of the United States is not sicking NATO on Russia right now, but it's helping arm Ukraine. It's helping arm maybe some of the Baltic countries and everything that are girding for a potential invasion or whatever can happen. But you know, in the background, this is what's a little absurd to me is that you can only protect and attack so much until you hit the nuclear tripwire. And that's something that a person like Vladimir Putin will always have. But as you explained earlier, you don't want to use it. It's only really useful if you can kind of flex it, if you can invoke it. I think there's been a heavy emphasis and certainly now decades and decades of dialogue amongst nations around the clear lose-lose proposition of anything that results in nuclear escalation. If you dial back, I'd say, some of the more notable developments over the decades that kind of followed the emergence of nuclear weapons. The early, outside of the strategic employment of nuclear weapons, I'd say the tactical employment of nuclear weapons was really introduced first as a concept to counter numeric, you know, what was a quantitative inferiority of conventional forces. So if you went back to NATO-Warsaw Pact in 60s, 70s, it was a three-to-one overmatch in favor of the Warsaw Pact. And so we quickly, I think, or we recognized that the idea of nuclear escalation was one that did not benefit anyone. And so the origins of a lot of the systems we were talking about just a moment ago in terms of precision-guided munitions, stealth, space-based communications, the origins of those from a defense strategy in the U.S. were really developed in order to provide a conventional deterrent in an environment where you wanted to clearly avoid any type of nuclear escalation. I'd say the same dynamic is happening today Again, you think about this administration, last administration, we were accustomed to having for the U.S. numerical superiority in addition to overmatch from a technology capability standpoint. It's no longer the case. So China's Navy now larger than the U.S. Navy. So a lot of the areas where folks are particularly focused in terms of capability is how do you develop a conventional deterrent, a conventional military capability that ultimately avoids just what you're talking about, which is capabilities that prevent things from escalating because in those vast majority of where they're escalating, it tends to be a lose-lose type scenario. Hmm. Can you explain something else to me? Uh, Turkey, right? So mm -hmm. it could purport to be neutral in this, but the TB2 drone, which is helping 
the Ukraine. I mean, that's not considered an act of cooperation or warfare. This is this is what I don't understand. This cheap Turkish drone. It was kind of like a wild card. It was like the St. Peter's peacocks that came out of the whole, you know, final four thing. How <laughs> how do you guys even prepare or account for these things? I mean, I never knew that Turkey had any sort of comparative advantage in this kind of, of munitions or armament. It's um I, I'd say the, the employment of that system is probably more than anything else, an example of how much you've seen the proliferation of what used to be technology that was pretty confined to the U.S., uh, now indigenous to a range of countries. Tur- Turkey is a great example, but there's there's plenty of others that have taken a lot of the capabilities that at one point would have been within the kind of mission set of an advanced combat aircraft that from a cost standpoint, you're talking about uh, in most cases kind of mid- Call it fifty million plus, kind of for many of those. Some cases, kind well, of let me price. let me quote let me quote from Fortune magazine in this for for everybody's uh, understanding out there. This uh, this Turkish drone at a price tag estimated to be as little as a million dollars. These aircraft mm-hmm. are easily expendable compared with other high tech armaments. And while they have a range typically limited to ninety three or so miles, they can loiter in the air for over twenty four hours, waiting for the right moment to strike. And Twitter was all abuzz with. Uh, you know, Ukrainian TB2 uh, a drone strike on a Russian military column. Uh, this kind of beggars belief. The Russians, I mean, what is it? The 15th largest economy on the planet, one of the, the most terrifying military uh, presences of the 20th century. And they had all of these months to kind of prepare for this invasion. But there's so many individual vulnerabilities. We talked about the javelin earlier. I mean, this turkey thing came out of left field. The the Bayraktar TB2 drone with a wingspan of 12 meters and equipped to carry four laser-guided bombs. It's really a brand new theater of warfare. I'd say it probably, I'd characterize maybe a bit more as an evolution, right? You think about distribution of those capabilities and then how do range of nations think about kind of their own strategies when you have those capabilities now in the hands of of multiple uh, multiple state actors. And so if you look, going back to our discussion of Javelin earlier, a big area of focus uh, within the US right now is on counter unmanned systems. So not just probably some of the higher end capabilities like a TB2 or you know the ultra high end where in the US you see kind of price points and capability sets of even much more capable uh, kind of unmanned systems. Mm-hmm. Of equal concern, or maybe not necessarily equal concern, but a different type of concern are the small drones, right? So if you think about weaponization- oh, these, back, these backpack drones? Yes. I mean, you talk about going into Best Buy and buying a DJI drone, which is you know Chinese manufacturer for price points that typically is in the thousand plus. You're getting meaningful capability, albeit kind of short range. But how do you think about countering those, particularly wow. if they're swarmed, right? So if you think about something as simple as explosive device on a very large number of relatively cheap devices, how do you counter that? So much like our Javelin example before, there's a lot of systems in development now that are counterment systems. So using high power microwave to shut down those uh, swarms of unmanned systems before they get in a position where they can kind of do real damage. So it's probably, if anything else, probably an example of like the reality, the recognition that the proliferation of this technology is now out there. You can't really roll it back. And so how do you, how does the US and our allies stay ahead of that curve with developing capabilities that can effectively deter, contain, and otherwise kind of mitigate their use? We're talking about the state of warfare and technology in 2022. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Please do stay with us. 
Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and uh, rave if you uh, so please. We air on Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ, WVTF, across the great Commonwealth. You could catch us in Northern Virginia and in D.C. on WERA, Radio Arlington. We are in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM and out west in Ventura, California on KPPQ, LP. Do get in touch if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we're talking to Harris Williams Managing Director Chris Rogers. He founded and leads the investment bank's Aerospace Defense and Government Services Group in a past life when we first met around 20 years ago in business school. Chris had served as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, and I thought it would be useful to bring him on the show because we used to have these far-ranging conversations about military histories and balance of powers and lessons learned and various butterfly effects from World War I and World War II and the Cold War and Vietnam and everything. And I was thinking about Chris when all of this stuff happened. It gets a little uncomfortable, Chris, in terms of you don't want to sound mercenary as an investment banker or a sell-side analyst or anybody pounding the table on militarization and armaments, but you're seeing the debate swirl. I looked in the Wall Street Journal in its sustainable business vertical. It said Sweden's SEB changes course on defense stocks as war tests ESG rules, right? You're talking about uh, socially responsible investing, which is typically shunned things like defense, defense slash aerospace, tobacco, gambling, but Sweden's you know, state investing spokesman said the company's investment management arm began a review of the policy triggered by the serious security situation and growing geopolitical tensions in recent months, which culminated with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, brought this issue to the fore from a policy perspective and resulted in a changed position among some of the fund company's customers. Uh, the Wall Street Journal writes that many inv- investors that focus on ESG don't invest in companies that make certain weapons such as cluster munitions and landmines, and some shun the defense sector altogether. Now defense companies are hoping that Russian President Vladimir Putin has changed the narrative around their sector. And there's also this New York Times headline, Russia's war prompts a pitch for, quote, socially responsible military stocks. What is going on? It's longstanding been a reality for for many private equity funds that their limited partners will have, I think as you were highlighting, restrictions on types of investments that they can make uh, in addition to restrictions on, uh, example, like tobacco and gambling. There frequently are restrictions on investing businesses that might tie to firearms or munitions, munitions often being defined or confined to things that have a a kinetic effect. Uh, Typically not constraints on investing in things like defense electronics, the various other components that may kind of enable those systems. I'd say there are a range of specialist private investors, meaning private equity groups and private investors that do focus in this space. And I'd say for the reasons you're highlighting, I'd say particularly even predating uh, the last five weeks in Ukraine, it's probably been more top of mind over the last two to three years as you've started to see mm-hmm. this shift in terms of just recognizing that there's a real need to invest in a lot of these advanced technologies when you've seen consolidation within the U.S. defense industrial base that you now have a relatively small number of very large defense primes at the top of the market. And there is a very large number of relatively small companies at the bottom of the market. There's a bit of a hollowing out in the middle. And so the need to build and invest kind of in the mid-tier is something that's bringing capital in, in terms of how do you build scaled platforms that are well-capitalized that can bring some of this capability both to the U.S. as well as to kind of allies. And to do that, in some cases- And you you, you say there are, there are military tech unicorns. 
And that has been a development that you know we've been following, I'd say, over the course of the last couple of years, but most notably the last year, it's been stunning. And but we also view it in many ways as a great positive kind of for the sector. I mean, there's four companies that in the last 12 months have raised private capital with billion plus valuations that are focused on national security and defense. And so the the idea of a defense unicorn is a relatively new one. If we think back to the origins of Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley got its start really from US DOD and investing in ranges of technology that were important for kind of early stages of Cold War. But there was a period of time where selling to US government was viewed as something that many folks kind of in the Valley did not want to get involved in. And that's changed. If you look at kind of what some of these companies are doing, they're leading with some incredibly talented teams that are focused on autonomy. They're focused on unmanned systems. They're focused on software that enables advanced analytics, artificial intelligence. So a lot of the themes that we're hitting on, it's great to see, at least from our perspective and many of our clients' perspective, new companies being built out that bring a lot of this capability to bear. And I think with a recognition that um, the U.S. needs to kind of continue to lead in this market. Earlier this week, the Biden administration submitted to Congress a proposed fiscal year 2023 Budget request of $813 billion for national defense, uh, $773 billion of which is for the Department of Defense. You know, this adds billions for a U.S. Space Force. Is that kind of whimsical? We did, see, we did see kind of North Korea romancing this launch of this theoretical intercontinental ballistic missile that could go up way up into the atmosphere and beyond. I mean, how much should our heads kind of be up there? I'm also thinking about Ronald Reagan and Star Wars in the 1980s. Well, I'd say space is commanding tremendous amount of attention, certainly in the national security community. And then I think the emergence of many of the commercial space uh, companies that have commanded attentions through a range of just technical feats that frankly have been kind of fantastic to watch when you're talking about you know SpaceX, Blue Origin, and others. Space is, like I'd say some of the other topics we touched on earlier, we were accustomed to it being an uncontested domain, meaning satellites that were going up or the idea of taking out a satellite was a kind of more of a theoretical uh, concept than something that anyone was all that seriously focused on several years ago. The command and control that comes uh, to U.S. and allied militaries from space is important. So if you think about being able to remove the eyes and ears, that has a massive impact on national security. So protecting those systems, formation of Space Force, that's a big part of where their focus is protecting U.S. national assets in space. Both from an ISR standpoint, meaning ability to see, hear, interpret data, but then also to defend, right? So you think about many of the long-range weapon systems that allow folks to uh, extend reach over periods of time. A lot of that space defense will either be coordinated or potentially you know, come from space. So we're expecting the horizon over which space is going to be both contested and invested heavily and to continue for the foreseeable future for, for sure. Chris, if we're back in business school and we're having one of these long, you know, Friday lunches talking about military history, I'd ask you if they were advanced as they are now about hypersonic missiles, which are designed to thwart, you know, sophisticated air defenses. And so you can see why Vladimir Putin has been putting these on display. It's it's said by Defense One that Russia has fired multiple hypersonic missiles into Ukraine. United States General has confirmed. Tell me more about these in the few minutes we have left and how much the United States and, and NATO have to bone up on the technology? Sure. Well, I, hypersonics are a segment where area focus, not just for the US, but for other 
um, peers and near peers. So they are commanding a lot of attention. If you think about kind of what a hypersonic weapon system is focused on, as the name would suggest, it's ultra high speed. So mock, typically Mach 5 discussion up to Mach 10. So when you think about Mach 5, that's like, don't hold me to this, but 3,800 miles per hour. And what that allows someone who's launching that over that type of range is it, there's there's a gap today in the ability to take out that weapon system as it's coming in. So you probably the topic of like ballistic missile defense has always been an idea of being able to alter, back to your point around asymmetry, the threat posed by those weapon systems if you can defend against them. Hypersonics today, in addition to developing those, like having hypersonic capability in and of itself can be a deterrent um, in the sense of if two folks are armed, the likelihood of one initiating in most instances lowers, but the idea of being able to defend against them is also an incredibly difficult technical problem. So in addition to developing hypersonics or range of systems, there's also a heavy emphasis on ways that we can potentially counter them kind of in the future. But it's definitely a topic that was not out there five, 10 years ago, at least in terms of you know common uh, themes that would come up in discussions that we're having. What is what is the anxiety or the spend to kind of have to keep up with this? If and 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 I imagine China has all other technologies, you know, in that in that frontier in that theater that you don't want to be blindsided by these things. If something like tai- Taiwan were to erupt or there were to be an invasion there, sure. I, if you look, I take this administration and again extend it back to the previous administration. If there's been a constant across themes from both White House as well as extend that to the Pentagon. It's been prior recognition that, that China is perceived as the pacing threat. So the idea of ensuring that the U.S. Uh, maintains a technical lead is of critical importance. So when you look at that budget increase that you referenced, which is meaningfully higher than folks had thought it would have been as recently as uh, several months ago, a big part of that is focused on if you break down how that gets spent, there's a meaningful portion of that budget that is going into R&D. So US government funding a lot of these programs that ensure that we kind of maintain that technical edge. Because a big part of where we're focused back to where you open the conversation, it's that asymmetry, right? So how do we maintain advantages? Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd like to close the conversation with you with asymmetry. A quote from Todd Walters, the head of the US European Command in testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee. This really kind of stood out. He said that Russia has committed at least 70% of its total military capability to its unprovoked war on Ukraine, yet failed to topple the government or crush the outnumbered Ukrainian resistance. Uh, just some of the <laughs> some of the stats and many asymmetries that you have been pondering. Chris Rogers, founder and head of Harris Williams Aerospace Defense and Government Services Group. I am so grateful to have you on. I know you typically don't do a lot of press, but this is super useful as kind of a, a 101 primer for our listeners. And I would encourage you to come back on. Robert, it was great being here. And thanks for having me on. And always great talking with you. Thank you, sir. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full disclosure, if you are just joining us, we are talking about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is disrupting long-held assumptions about, uh, I guess, post-Cold War deterrence, military technology, asymmetries. We are joined once again by Morgan Till. He is foreign and defense editor at PBS NewsHour. Uh, Very busy man this past 40, 50 days. How are you, sir? Robin, in a word, tired, but not as tired as my crews uh, who have been in Ukraine um, almost since the beginning of the war and my crews throughout Europe and inside Russia, not nearly as tired as them. So I think I can get along, but it's wonderful to be back with you. Thank you for coming back on. Uh, Tell me back in 2014 when Crimea happened, I, I remember kind of faintly after Sochi, 
right? They just kind of went in there. There was this operation of Little Green Men, and it was kind of a private label incursion. Did you expect anything like this? If I go back to that moment in 2014 when I was in Crimea, when when the the Little Green Men were everywhere, uh, unmarked, uh, with no insignia on their uniforms, unmarked vehicles, but somehow most of the Russian bases had emptied. Did I think we would be here now? No, I didn't even suspect uh, in the middle of March or early March 2014, we would get to the point where the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, as they call them, provinces, would be in rebellion with the support of the Russians and the instigation of the Russians. So in a word, no, I didn't think we'd be here. And here is a really, really terrible place, to state the obvious. What was Vladimir Putin romancing? If you just look at it apples to apples, here you have a nuclear power going up against a neighbor, which is kind of borderline NATO, which has been roughed, roughed about several times over the past decade. It should not have kind of uh, ground down into this uh, quagmire. Well, that's true. I mean, the, 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 there have been somewhat halting and abortive prospects for peace in the Donbass. There is this process called the Minsk process. There's a separate process called the Normandy process. But the Minsk agreement was signed in 2015, and that was overseen by the French and the Germans and between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The problem is that none of its key tenets or, or most of its key tenets had not been put in place because both sides, the Russians and the Ukrainians, basically fundamentally disagree on how they should be agreed. So that process is dead in the water right now. It was a we had on the program. Uh, I want to say in, in mid-February before the fighting started, the number four person at State Department, um, known to your more attentive viewers, uh, Victoria Newland, who's the Undersecretary of State for Policy, she said, we asked her, Nick Schiffer and my correspondent I work with asked her, you know, what's the off-ramp here with 150,000 Russian troops on the border? And she reverted to that. She said, the off-ramp is already, already extant. It's the mince process. Uh, so that went nowhere. Um, but Morgan, you know, it seemed to have shattered the taboo. I mean, the Minsk process, it's, you know, there's this asymmetry here. He has nuclear powers. If the United States or NATO intervenes, he could always kind of flex that. I mean, you're talking right. almost about something academic in a kind of a 2014-2015 regime. He invaded. He's shelling the heck out of Mariupol. Uh, you see civilian casualties everywhere. You see uh, whispers about war crimes and crimes against humanity. I mean, to what extent can you kind of go back and, and reconstruct Humpty Dumpty, if you will? Well, I mean, it, it, his potential has always been there. I mean, if you go back and look at Chechnya, which he, as prime minister or deputy prime minister, whatever he was, is sort of the, the hidden hand behind a failing Boris Yeltsin in the late 90s into the early 2000s. If you look at the pictures of Grozny, the place was flattened. If you look at the pictures of Aleppo in Syria, starting when the Russians entered in September of 2015 and bombed indiscriminately and targeted hospitals and schools and residential areas, killing tens of thousands of people. That prospect has always been there. I think what may have surprised people when it comes to Ukraine is he makes these arguments that Ukraine is fundamentally Russian. Mm. And if you, if you go back a thousand years, the original settlements of Kiev Rus is where the Russian name comes from. Moscow was not even a dream yet when Kiev was was a major city. So he makes it part of the Russian identity and wow. a fundamental part of the Russian identity. And where it doesn't track for me, and I am by no means a, a Putin expert, but I've covered the man for a long time, is 
if it's so fundamental to your ultimate desires for a rebuilt Russian empire, much less rebuilt Soviet Union, I think he's much more akin to looking at empire than, than the USSR. Why destroy what you covet? And that's the question that, that I found mind boggling. And frankly, that's why I was really, I was astonished when they finally went in, even though they'd had those troops arrayed there. But remember, they've done this several times before. They boosted their troop presence on the Ukrainian border in past years to the point, you know, before and after major exercises where people have been worried about this for a while. It's just having spent a good bit of time in Ukraine, it's mind boggling to me that he would want to go in and basically destroy several of its major cities. What about the lesson of uh, Afghanistan in 1980 and how the Mujahideen kind of ground down the will of, of the Soviet Union and helped bankrupt the Soviet Union? I guess, is that all ancient history? Is that bunk? Um, I don't think it is. I mean, you have a similar, a similar kind of construct here. They were able to overtake Afghanistan pretty quickly and install a friendly communist government. But then the Mujahideen came, you know, with a lot of American support, a lot of Pakistani support. Most of those weapons funneled through Pakistan. You know, they were able to grind down the Soviets with a lot of the same things we're seeing now. Stinger missiles, anti-tank weapons. The Mujahideen did not have an air force. Um, you know, the Ukrainians, as we know, have been pleading for post-Soviet jets owned by NATO countries, Poland specifically, but several others. Um, but you ha what you have here that's majorly different is the overt supply of American and NATO weaponry in the open to a country at war with the country that has the most nuclear weapons on the planet. That is the signal difference here, you know, from the very beginning, starting in 2014, when the Obama administration uh, started giving them small arms and, you know, a lot of gear, trucks, night vision goggles, other stuff, body armor, Continuing into the latter years of Obama and into Trump when they supplied Javelin missiles, those very effective shoulder-fired anti-tank yeah, missiles yeah. that have been wrecking havoc on the Russians. That to me is, is it's amazing to me that, that that is being done so openly. And it's almost like it's daring Putin to do something else in some well, ways. Explain, and I think explain that to me. That's not tantamount to, you know, shelling a major city in Moscow, the United States or NATO retaliating directly, but you're, you're, funneling thousands and thousands of javelins and stinger missiles. And there was even this moment where the Poles potentially said we could arbitrage some of our fighter planes back into it. How is that not a declaration of war? It's a good question. And smarter people than me will understand why it's not. Um, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting... I mean, I think the difference here is that NATO as an alliance which had been frayed, uh, to use a charitable term, during the Trump years, is now united in a way that it has not been probably since two 2001 after 9-11 when they declared uh, Article 5, when they invoked Article 5 and, it, and, and went into Afghanistan with the Americans. The thinking, I think, goes is, look, the United States and our allies to forestall an invasion are we are going to arm them to the teeth within certain parameters that we have. Remember that this was nothing of the sort that the Obama people did with the Syrians even. Mm. Uh, they would not give them shoulder-fired missiles to shoot down Russian planes and Syrian helicopters and Syrian jets because concerns largely born from the Israelis about them seeping out of the country. But back to Russia, I mean, I think the, the overtness of the campaign to arm them and look, we there is probably there is more than likely other armaments going in there that we don't know about. 
it's not as if they're publishing uh, everything in a in, in the equivalent of what you would know better is like the Fed beige book. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so, um, but it's you know the calculus there has been one of of confrontation with limits, and that's why you keep hearing President Biden say we will defend every last inch of NATO territory if Russia comes in, and that's been the red line. And you know I think the rubber will meet the road on some of this once the Russians figure out if they're able to figure out how to hit some of these convoys that are supplying weapons and armaments to to the Ukrainians. And if they're, you know, those are Ukrainians driving them. There are no NATO troops or American troops in Ukraine right now. But when those stockpiles, if those stockpiles start to get hit, then I think we'll see a, a different order of battle. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Morgan Till. He is foreign and defense editor with PBS NewsHour. He has traveled the world. He's spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine, in the Middle East, across South America. He's been everywhere. And I'm just curious about, you know, a couple of footnotes you're reading in this. Like, where out of nowhere did the Turkish drones come in? I mean, I haven't thought about balance of power as much since kind of, you know, European history in the 10th grade. Right. Uh, aren't, aren't the Turks purportedly neutral in this, and yet they're sending these very lethal drones to Ukrainian street fighters? I don't think they're sending them to the street fighters, and they sold them, I believe, to to the Ukrainians I as see. part of their of their plus up of of their own inventories. I see. Um, and there's a backstory here which is fascinating that that people can read more about it, but. Turkish-American relations were very bad in the later Obama years and through part of the Trump administration because the Turks had bought the Russians' most advanced surface-to-air missile defense systems. Mm. At the same time, they had bought or had orders for American F-35 fighter jets, which are the most advanced fighter plane in the world. And there was concern that the Russians could learn how to track those jets if the Turks activated those systems. Now, it's been a long-standing confrontation without a resolution before between the Turkish and the Americans. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, even though Recep Tayyip Erdogan is, is I would say, um, trending much more authoritarian than he did a decade ago, having changed the constitution to become president, having made that job the most powerful in the country, he is a member of NATO. Turkey is a member of NATO and is a long-standing member of the alliance. So it's, you know, you can't you can't play it both ways. We see the same thing with Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has declared that no weapons will enter Ukraine from Hungary. They share a border of a couple hundred miles. You know, he too has been Putin sympathetic, uh, Putin curious, if you will. Um, meeting with him in the run-up to this, we remember all those meetings with foreign heads of state at those elongated, ridiculously long tables um, because Putin is apparently uh, COVID-phobic to the extreme. Orban has stuck with the alliance. Now, he's come in for great criticism from especially his Eastern European neighbors, Poland, Slovakia, others, over some of his statements and their refusal to stop buying Russian gas, um, as the Germans have. The Poles today declared that they would try to end their reliance on Russian fossil fuels by the end of this year. And that is going to be a titanic task, given their overall reliance and Europe's writ large on Russian energy. And, you know, your your ears were burning in that because I'm thinking back to 1998 and Boris Yeltsin literally teetering when oil fell to something like nine or ten dollars a barrel. You could not have this kind of adventure. Is that just is that just legend? you know, without high double-digit or triple-digit international crude oil prices? 
it would be much more difficult. I mean, you know, I remember 1999 when gas was 89 cents a gallon in a lot of places. Um, and now it's four times that or more or much more. The short answer is, you know, so much of Russian receipts, government receipts come from their fossil fuels and precious metals, but mostly they're oil and natural gas. And they have, um, in recent days, as you've probably noted, started to demand, or they backed off it a little bit, demand that payments for their deliveries be made in rubles and not dollars, in part to prop up the ruble, which has gotten absolutely crushed by the sanctions imposed by Europe, by the Aussies, by the Japanese, and of course, by the United States and Canada. There's a separate interesting conversation about why the global South has done very little to try to exact punishment. And then there's a separate separate whole podcast, frankly, on why the Chinese are, are sort of playing footsie with both sides of it, more so with the Russians than, than with, obviously, with NATO or the US. But back to your original question, um, there's no doubt that if oil was at $10 a barrel, it would have been extraordinarily hard to mount this kind of campaign, as woe-begone as it's been for the Russians with taking massive losses, fierce, fierce resistance, and having, you know, counterintuitively united NATO to a point that it's not been in a generation. Morgan Till, Foreign and Defense Editor with the PBS NewsHour. You know, sir, that you are always welcome to come back on this show. A busy man indeed. Indeed. And I love I love talking to you. It's a great show. Uh, and I'll see you at Amu's Kebabs. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to my producer, Claire Morgan. Listen to us online at NPR.org, NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us and recommend this show to others. You can catch me weekly on WVTF Radio IQ and NPR and WBUR's Here and Now. I am on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle fulldradio. The DMs are always open. Holler if you'd like full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs>